of review. Last week we finished our study of paragraph 1 of chapter 2 of our confession. And I want to read it again just because it feeds really well into paragraph 2, which is what we'll be studying today. So chapter 2, paragraph 1. The Lord our God is but one only living and true God whose subsistence is in and of Himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but Himself, a most pure spirit, invisible without body, parts, or passions, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of His own immutable and most righteous will, for His own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek Him, and withal most terrible in His judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. And we noted the way this paragraph is outlined, talking about the singularity of God, the independence of God, the incomprehensibility of God, the spirituality of God, the immateriality of God, the infinity of God, the sovereignty of God, the love of God, and the justice of God. And so, paragraph one you can think about as a positive description of who God is. This is, if we were try, to try and define who the God is we're worshiping, this is a definition we might offer. Paragraph two goes on to say, this God we have just described, this is how He relates to His creatures. And before we read it, we can see the outline again if you're looking at the older language, the semicolons divided up. But we can see His self-sufficient independence from His creatures. His sovereign dominion over the creatures. His absolute knowledge of those creatures. His utter sanctity before the creatures. And His intrinsic claims upon the creatures. So, with that, we'll read paragraph 2 which is the focus of our study this morning. God, having all life, glory, goodness, blessedness, in and of Himself, is alone in and unto Himself all sufficient, not standing in need of any creature which He hath made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting His own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is the alone fountain of all being of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. And He hath most sovereign dominion over all creatures, to do by them, for them, or upon them, whatsoever Himself pleaseth. In His sight, all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature, so as nothing is to Him contingent or uncertain. He is most holy in all His counsels, in all His works, and in all His commands. To Him is due from angels and men whatsoever worship, service, or obedience as creatures they owe unto the Creator, and whatever He is further pleased to require of them. And you can hear the overwhelming emphasis is God's independence 
and also the claims that he has upon us. And a a repeating theme we might have is the Lord is God and you and I are not. And this means many things in regard to our relationship with him. So let's look at the first section, his sufficient independence from them. And again, the language, God having all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself is alone and unto himself all sufficient, not standing in need of any creature which he hath made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. And we're getting back to aseity, which we've talked about before, that he is uh, from himself. But what I find especially helpful in this paragraph, we have in the beginning, life, glory, goodness, and blessedness. The idea that God is the source of these things. And there are there's none, none of these things that can be found independent of Him. So, thought experiment. You can't have a plant grow without God. Even if you were able to find a plant, there wouldn't be any life in it without God. There's no new life, no birth that can happen apart from God. And even just reflecting upon this, we consider how how precious our lives are to us because life is not intrinsic to us. There are a multitude of ways I can lose my life. There are many things that can happen to me that will end my life. And so life is not intrinsic to me. But it is intrinsic to God. And everything that has life, has life because God has given it to them. And there are a couple Scriptures that might be very helpful. In the Confessions, uh, if you have the Scriptures, a lot of them I think are actually... Like there are some weeks you look and you read through the Scripture references and it's not especially clear what the connection is. But I think a lot of them in this paragraph are pretty helpful. So John 5.26, For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And the idea is that God has life in Himself. It's intrinsic. Something that can't be separated from Him by any means. And so anything that does have life outside of Him has it because it's come from God. Acts 17.28 says, For in Him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. The interesting thing about that passage, if you remember, is he's not quoting Scripture there. Paul is quoting some of the pagan poets to these pagan Greeks, saying, your own poets know this stuff. And so it's basic philosophy and theology to understand life is not intrinsic to us. Our life has to be tied to another. And that another is God. Colossians 1.17 says, And He is, this is Christ, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And so, we can think the same thing about uh, glory. Glory is not intrinsic to who we are. R.C. Sproul was really helpful in wording it in a helpful way. 
Essentially, there's nothing especially dignified about, oh, here we go. From a biblical perspective, we see that dignity, worth, or esteem when attributed to human beings is a gift. We prefer to think that our dignity is intrinsic to our humanity, but dirt has little inherent dignity. We were created out of dust, and we return to dust. And the only reason we do say that all human beings are worthy of intrinsic respect is because we're made in the image of God, right? In other words, we've been granted by God a dignity that is not inherent to animated dirt. Right? But we do see the Lord has glory in and of Himself. In Psalm 148.13, Let them praise the name of the Lord, for His name alone is exalted, and His majesty is above earth and heaven. The high priestly prayer in John 17 When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son, that the Son may glorify You, since You have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom You have given Him. And this is eternal life, that they know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom You have sent. I glorified You on earth, having accomplished the work that You gave Me to do. And now, Father... Glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And so, get that. Before the world existed, God had glory. It's intrinsic to who He is. He is the fountain of life. He is the fountain of glory. And again, if we consider ourselves, we know glory is not intrinsic to us because we see people do wild and crazy things to attain glory. Right? We sing songs and beings about people that have done amazing things. I stumbled upon a YouTube video as this is a Mongolian, I think he's a throat singer. I think that's what it's called. But uh, he was singing the song and playing wonderfully on, I don't know what the name of the instrument is, it's a stringed instrument with only a couple strings. But he was singing a song about Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan's been dead for a long time. But he attained a certain level of, from an earthly perspective, glory because of what he did. And so we recognize by virtue of being born, I don't have glory. I have to do certain things to be seen and recognized by other people to get a certain level of glory. But in God, glory is intrinsic. And any glory that we esteem on others or are given by God is from God. We can see in other people courage, which reminds us of God whether we acknowledge it or not. We see in other people amazing creativity, amazing acts of love, And these things we ascribe some level of glory to because they, in a sense, point back to God who is the fountain of all glory. Hebrews Hebrews 1, 3-4 says, He, Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, 
having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited, is more excellent than theirs. So we see God is the fountain of life. God is the fountain of glory. God is the fountain of goodness. I don't think we have to reflect very long to understand that goodness is not intrinsic to who we are. We are born wicked. Born God-hating. We don't have to be taught to lie. We don't have to be taught to hit. And I'd imagine all of you parents have experienced this. You never sat down with your children and gave a lesson on how to lie. But your children somehow know how to lie. Or figure it out really quick. Because we're not intrinsically good. And any goodness that we find in ourselves or in others is from the fountain of goodness, God. And we see multiple scriptures that point to this. We see Psalm 119, verse 68. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. And perhaps more well known, Mark 10, 17-18. And as he was setting on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him, Christ, and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Here he's teaching exactly what we're talking about. Goodness is not to be found intrinsically in anyone except God, who is the fountain of goodness. And we can say the same thing about blessedness. All of these things are intrinsic to God and flow out of Him to give as He pleases to His creatures. And anything we see of these things in each other are gifts from God. So we see, as we've just gone through, His self-sufficient independence from them. We go on in the paragraph to see His sovereign dominion over them, them being us, the creatures. He is the alone fountain of all being, which is a lot of what we've been just talking about of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. And He hath most sovereign dominion over all creatures to do by them, for them, or upon them, whatsoever Himself pleases. And we know this is offensive. This is absolutely one of the more offensive things we believe about our God. That the Lord is God and we are not. He is the potter, we are the clay. We are instruments in His hands to do with what He wills for His good pleasure. So we can look at seeing this. What passages come to mind if we want to see from the text God's absolute dominion. God's absolute sovereignty over His creatures. But I think there's multiple we can go to. Mm-hmm. It's His possession. The fullness thereof. What else? Right. Absolutely. And I think you get this a lot in Isaiah. And in the Psalms, 
But there's no one that can come to him, tap his shoulder, and say, what are you doing? No one can do that. What else? Because a lot of the passages in Job, especially the end, yes. um, bring to mind God's sovereignty as God corrects Job. Absolutely. And you also have the beginning of Job, too, where more devotionally, Job is celebrating God's sovereignty. Um, I have like Job 20 through 22. Then Job arose and tore his robes and shaved his head after he lost everything and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I come, came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And notice the striking nature of this. Job is told all these raiders attacked his land, took away people. The storm came and wiped out his family. He doesn't blame demons. He doesn't blame the other people necessarily. He ascribes all of these things to the sovereign providence of the Lord. He said, the Lord is given, the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so we have a wonderful example here of what it means to rest in this idea that God has utter sovereign dominion over all things. Something strange isn't happening to me if bad things happen. It's according to God's sovereign decree and He works all things for the good of those who love Him. Later on in Job 13.15, we hear, though He slay me, I will hope in Him. Whatever God wants to do to me, I will still hope in Him. We read Psalm 115, verse 3 last week. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. John 1, 12-13 applies this to salvation. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And of course, Romans 9 is always on our minds when we consider these things because the language is so striking. Verses 10 through 13. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our father Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And it's just emphasizing, not because of works, but because of him who calls. The Lord is in the heavens. He does what he pleases. He is utterly sovereign over all things. As R.C. Sproul has famously said, there is not a maverick molecule in the universe. He meticulously orders everything. And again, it comes down to the simple truth. The Lord is God and I am not. We continue in the paragraph to see God's absolute knowledge of His creatures. In His sight, all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, independent upon the creature. As nothing is to Him contingent or uncertain. If we break this down into sections, we 
deal with all things are open and manifest to God's sight. There's nothing hidden from Him, right? There's nothing He has to learn. He knows all things immediately. Luke 8.17 says this pretty plainly. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Hebrews 4.13 says, And no creature is hidden from His sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. You see, God's knowledge is infinite. And don't have a lot to say about this except He knows all things. And we can say, even though this is a finite world, God's knowledge is infinite because He knows Himself. And He's infinite. So in order for Him to fully know Himself, He has to have infinite knowledge. At least that's one way I've thought about it. But... His knowledge is infinite. His knowledge is infallible. Obviously, God's never wrong about anything. No one, again, like Nancy brought up, no one can tap God's shoulder and say, what are you doing? What have you done? But where I want to park for a little bit is that His knowledge is independent upon the creature. Because this is where we really diverge from a lot of other ways of thinking about the relationship of God's sovereignty and man's will. We, I mentioned Molinism last week, this idea that um, God wants utterly free creatures, but obviously wants certain things to happen. And so, He knows all things that will happen, all things that could happen, all things that would happen given certain conditions. And so, if He wants certain outcomes, he selects from a list of possible worlds where different things could happen by free creatures and then selects the one that he wants. The problem with that is that all of these worlds are not determined by God's decree. They're determined by the will of the creature. In other words, his knowledge is not intrinsic to himself. It is contingent upon the creature. In other words, as God thinks about the options He has for creation, the options are differentiated by what free creatures do. And so we come to a different understanding than what we are affirming here this morning. Arminianism, to some extent, requires God's knowledge being contingent on the actions of free creatures because Christ's atonement is for everyone in general and no one in particular... And though God may know the number of the saved in the end and their identity, He only knows this through passive observation, right? He knows this because He's outside of time and passively observes who will respond to the Gospel. Again, His knowledge is dependent, contingent upon the creature. Open theism, the worst of the three, openly asserts that God doesn't know all things, doesn't know the future, can't know the future because it hasn't happened yet. And so God learns. And His knowledge is obviously contingent upon free creatures and what they do. We believe in what the confession is stating, His knowledge is independent upon the creature. We don't do anything where God's like, oh, Okay. Or that's interesting. Or I didn't see that coming. 
Another way of saying this is his knowledge is active rather than passive. God doesn't passively observe the corridors of time and come to his omniscience. God is omniscient because he actively decrees all things. How do we get this scripturally? Uh, I think Exodus is a great place to go. So if you want to turn with me to Exodus 3, we'll flip through Exodus for a little bit. We'll begin in Exodus 3, verses 19 through 22. The Lord says to Moses, But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold, jewelry, and for clothing. And you shall put them on your son's and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. So, question. Does this happen exactly as it's stated here? Do the events play out exactly as the Lord lays out? Yes, yes they do. So, perhaps a rhetorical question for now, but how does God know this is going to happen? Does he know because he's passively observed through the corridors of time what's going to happen and can tell us ahead of time because he's outside of time? Or does he know because he is actively involved in every step of the process to bring this about? Well, the text is going to tell us a lot. Go to Exodus 4, verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let your people go. God claims direct ownership of the variables in the situation. This isn't the only time he does this. Exodus 7, verses 3 through 4. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt, my great acts of judgment. A few verses later in verse 13 of chapter 7, still Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Verse 22 of chapter 7, But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Chapter 8, verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Exodus 8, 19. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Verse 12 of chapter 9, But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. And so, we could say many things here, but one thing that's obvious, the Lord is not shy 
about taking responsibility for how things are progressing, right? There's no embarrassment on the Lord's part for the responsibility He's actively taking here. We might feel that embarrassment, especially as we talk about these passages with non-believers. We naturally feel embarrassed because we, we're afraid of that accusation, well, aren't we just puppets in the hand of God then? What's the point of anything? But the first thing I want to point out is there's no embarrassment in Scripture about this. There's no apology for the way things are worded, which might say more about the way we think than what Scripture is actually teaching. But Scripture does kind of speak to this, the whole accusation. So, Exodus 9, 16-17. But for this purpose I have raised you up, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. So God has a purpose in this. And just to add to this before we're going to go to Romans 9, but I want to pause in between there because I found it so helpful years ago that John Piper was dealing with this very same question. And we, we go to all the darkest things we can imagine. And we're broken up over how can God, how can a sovereign God have a role in the ordination of all these things? But if we ask ourselves, what was the most wicked act that ever happened in human history? We should say it was the crucifixion of Christ. The murder and public execution of the only truly innocent man that ever existed. And yet when we find in Acts 2, 22-24, men of Israel hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Here we have first-hand testimony that the most wicked act in all of human history was done according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Again, there's no embarrassment about the level of involvement God has. And our natural selves want to shake our fists at this. And we say, with the theoretical objector in Romans 9, verses 19 through 24, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And this is what, this is what the objector says. Well, if God is this sovereign, well, how can he find fault? Who can resist his will? And Paul gives, in many ways, a terribly unsatisfying answer because he doesn't really answer the question. He says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? 
Or what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles? And so we're brought back to that same phrase, the Lord is God, and I am not. We're not told the answer to that question of the objector. We're rather told, this is a place where you must humble yourself and trust the sovereign decree of God, trust that He is good, and trust that He does... Hopefully, this comes after Romans 8, right? So, Romans 9 is not in a vacuum. It comes after Romans 8 where it's already been declared that He works all things for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Which I think makes all of this much easier to swallow. The end of Romans 8, what shall separate us from the love of God? The answer is nothing. And so we're, we're told that this absolute sovereignty is not of an evil dictator, a cosmic big brother, but is from the fountain of all life, all goodness, all glory, all blessedness. And that's something that should actually comfort us rather than cause us consternation. And what you're going to see as the confession builds upon itself. Chapter 3 is on God's decree. And the foundation is being set for that in this paragraph as we reflect on the absolute sovereignty of God. We'll get to hear more from Caleb on chapter 3 in a couple weeks. But we need to keep moving we go on to God's utter sanctity before His creatures. The paragraph says, He is most holy in all His counsels, in all His works, and in all His commands. And here we come again to what we see in Isaiah 6. We've talked about the last several weeks. God is high and lifted up. We must start from this premise rather than thinking God is fundamentally like me. Because if we think He's fundamentally like me, we will come to wrong conclusions every time. But if we begin with him being high and lifted up, we're going to come to a much more scriptural understanding of who God is. Job 9.12 says exactly what Nancy was referencing earlier. Behold, he snatches away. Who can turn him back? Who will say to him, what are you doing? The answer is nobody will say to him, what are you doing? There is no one God has to answer to. There's no one God has to report to. No one that he has to fill out paperwork for and turn it in that they might check it and give him a review. Right? Psalm 145.17 says, The Lord is righteous in all His ways, and kind in all His works. I really like Daniel 4. This is after Nebuchadnezzar regains his sanity. After he said in his hubris that he declared himself to be like God. 
At the end of the days, in verses 34 through 35, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and He does according to His will. Among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? And again, we keep coming back to, The Lord is God, and I am not. And rather than this be something we beat ourselves with, it should be something that we praise God for. Because as we've hopefully seen these last couple weeks, God's a much better God than I could ever be. And if I were given the reins, I may personally like things better, but they wouldn't be better. They'd be much worse. Finally, we see the Lord's intrinsic claims upon His creatures. The confession states, To Him is due from angels and men whatsoever worship, service, or obedience as creatures they owe unto the Creator and whatever He is further pleased to require of them. And this is almost repetition at this point. Just drilling in the point We must know our place before our God. And it is a place of utter humility. There is no room for pride in asserting our own way before God. And the paragraph asserts this by virtue of God's role as creator, right? As creatures they owe unto the creator. So we could say just by virtue of Him being Creator and we being creature, we owe Him everything that He asks of us. And He owes us nothing. But, for God's people, wonderfully, there's another reason we owe God everything. We not only owe God everything as our Creator, but we also owe God everything as our Redeemer. Does anyone remember how the Ten Commandments begin before you even get to the Ten Commandments proper? How is it introduced? Not not in Exodus 20. That's in Deuteronomy 6. But when you're thinking of Exodus 20 and it's outlining the Ten Commandments, what's the first thing that's said? Yes. I am the Lord of your God who brought you out, who redeemed you out of the land of Egypt. And so there's this idea right away, I bought you. You're mine. And because of that, do this. And this isn't just a creative act. This is a salvific act. He saved the Israelites from bondage in Egypt. There was salvation And because of that, the Jews owed him everything. And it's no different for us. If anything, we have even greater 
reason to owe God everything because we're not just saved from physical slavery, we're saved from spiritual slavery. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You've been bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. First Corinthians 7.23 says very similarly, you were bought with a price, do not become bondservants of men. The idea is, I'm bought by the precious blood of Christ. And because of that, I owe God everything. And so I just wanted to emphasize at the end, it's more than He is our Creator. But Him being our Creator is enough to say that we owe Him everything. But we have wonderfully even more than that. We could stick with the same wording and say He is our new Creator. (laughs) He is the one who newly creates us in Christ. We are doubly created, born again. And because of that, we owe absolute, unwavering allegiance to God. So, are there any comments or questions or thoughts regarding anything in the paragraph? I might begin going to Colossians 1 where it talks about Jesus being the creator of all things. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And here you have, like, Christ being tied to both offices. He's creator and new creator. He's creator and redeemer. Identified with the Father as creator. Holding all things together and participating in that. But his preeminence is shown absolutely. And gets at many of the same things we're talking about here. That God is high and lifted up, different from us. The fountain of all being. Everything we are is intrinsic to Him. And not intrinsic to us. Any other? Yeah. I'm just going to comment on when you were talking about the glory of, of man not being intrinsic to us, but to God. Mm-hmm. Right. But you have made him lower than the angels and crowned him with glory. Yes. So, even though he, because he is the creator, we are then crowned with glory. Yes. Quite apart from sin. Yes. Yeah. So we see that, yes, in the Imago Day in creation, but we also see it through the salvation offered in Christ, which is what you're getting at in Psalm 8, that Christ has humbled Himself to be among us and then lift us up with Him. And that's a, what we refer justification, sanctification, glorification. 
glorification being the final state of our salvation. Anything else? And I hope it, this is difficult stuff to talk about with people that are outside of the reform sphere, right? Because this is where people get angry and it's difficult. But I want to emphasize we are tempted to be embarrassed by what we believe. Scripture is not embarrassed (laughs) about what it teaches. There is no hint of, man, I hate to have to tell you this, but I hardened Pharaoh's heart. (laughs) There's no hint of any trepidation at revealing this. Now, I'm not saying we need to be arrogant jerks. I'm just saying... We need to fight the impulse to be embarrassed of believing things that a lot of professing believers are angry about. Okay. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would not not be embarrassed of You or Your Word, but would celebrate what you've revealed about yourself and revel in it. The idea that you are an utterly sovereign God, the fountain of all being, who works all things for the good of those who love Him. What better news could there possibly be? That there are none who can tap your shoulder and say, what are you doing? Certainly not the devil. Certainly not the most powerful wicked men on this planet. None can stop your designs, which you have designed for your glory and for the good of your people. Lord, help us to revel in what Scripture says about who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.